Well, good morning. I'm Doug McKenry, lead pastor here, and I'm glad you're with us today. Uh, whether you're here in person or whether you're worshiping with us on uh, line at home, I really hope that you're blessed with the services, especially as we hear the uh, baptism uh, testimonies and, and celebrate with these individuals a little bit later in the service. Uh, and I hope you also enjoy the, the great weather. It's just really nice to wake up and not have it be below zero, much less below uh, uh, zero, uh, freezing. So today we're continuing the sermon series that we kicked off a couple of weeks ago. We're working through this on the way towards Easter. And the title of the sermon series is Adventures in Missing the Point, which I, I kind of like. I think it's kind of cool. Uh, Tony Campolo years ago wrote a book by the same name, Adventures in Missing the Point. And what we're doing in the sermon series is we're looking at the interactions that Jesus has with this first century group of religious leaders known as the Pharisees. Uh, and we're looking at different passages in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where Jesus has an interaction with people. He teaches something. He does something. Uh, and often it's outside the box. Often it's like, what is he saying? Or it's really profound. And, 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 and these, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they often, they just miss the point. Uh, either they do so deliberately because they just don't want to acknowledge this, uh, or, or they miss it somehow. It goes over their head. It doesn't penetrate their hearts. Uh, it, it, they just miss the point. And last week we saw that one of the reasons why they missed the point so often was because of a focus on the letter of the law as opposed to the spirit of the law. And, and this focus on the, on the letter of the law led to this sort of legalism, this very rigid structure of do's and don'ts and who to be with and who to avoid and how to eat and how to wash your hands and, and all these different things, how you're supposed to worship, all these things. Uh, it became this, this rigid structure of, of legalism, which really began to become a burden for people and became barriers that kept people from knowing the living God. And I, and I guess to, to, they're, they're, they were thinking was this is what, what a way for them to kind of relate to God. To, it was kind of works based so they could kind of control things. Uh, they could control themselves to, to a certain degree that here's the boundaries, here's the limits. We know if we're doing these things, we're OK with God. If we're not doing these things, we're OK with God, so on and so forth. Uh, they they've probably used this in some ways to control people to make sure the people of God did what they were supposed to do in their minds. And in whether they wanted to admit it or not, it probably also was a little bit of a way to try to control God, you know, manipulate God. If I do this and I avoid these people and I eat these foods or avoid these foods or worship this way or don't do this, then God is obligated. God is obligated to, to do this for me, to bless me or, or to do something for me. Um, now, how do they fall into this error? How did they miss, you know, the point? Remember last week we saw that these guys, these Pharisees, they were people of the word. I mean, they knew the scriptures, the, the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They knew those, those books frontwards and backwards. They could, they could quote chapter. They could quote verse. They were constantly debating and discussing uh, the word, uh, who it was meant for what it meant, how to apply it, those, those sorts of things. And when there wasn't a direct command or there weren't specific instructions about a specific situation or circumstance uh, that they could see in the, in the word, well, they would, they would come up with one. They would try to come up with one that would kind of, in their minds, fit and be appropriate and that would fit into the whole of Scripture. doesn't sound so bad, does it? So how did they miss the point? Did the Scriptures... Did the scripture steer them wrong? Let's take a look. 
the passage we're looking at today is from Matthew 13. Uh, so you can follow along uh, in your Bibles or on your phone app, or you can follow along on the screen. And this is a passage that's fairly lengthy. I'll read through most of it. So hang with me. I'll make a few comments here and there. And then we're going to jump into this and, and see uh, how the Pharisees missed the point. Let's begin at verse 13. And this is a parable Jesus teaches with a big crowd of people. Uh, the disciples were a part of this crowd. Uh, there was this kind of general population, and there would have been religious leaders there as well. So verse 1 of chapter 13 of Matthew. The same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. And such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat on it while the people, all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. So other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. And it says the disciples then came to Jesus privately, uh, we assume, and asked him, why do you speak to the people in parables? Jesus replied, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Those who have will be given more and they will have an abundance. And as for those who do not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables, though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. And he quotes Isaiah here. You will ever be hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts in turn. And I would heal them. So in other words, uh, they're talking about how the people in the past uh, have not wanted to hear. Uh, They've chosen not to hear, to not understand, and they've rebelled against God. Verse 16. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. Truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but not hear it. So he's talking about God in Christ coming to them, the Messiah. And then he explains it. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When people hear the message about the kingdom and do not understand it, the evil one, Satan, comes and snatches away what was sown in their hearts. And this is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to people who hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But, but since they have no roots, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to people who hear the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to people who hear the word and understand it. And they produce a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. So what does this have to do with missing the point? Well, the point I'm going to start with is is we miss the point just like the Pharisees did when we bring our agenda to the word. 
let me explain. Unfortunately, as human beings, we have particular backgrounds, personalities, experiences, and cultures, and because of that, we have a hard time sometimes separating ourselves out from that, which means that sometimes we can have a, you know, a personal bias or whatever regarding different things. And, and you know, and, and a grid begins to develop or a lens begins to develop through which we see everything. And then that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? I mean, how, how boring would it be if we all had the same background and the same perspective? Our world is, is a much better place because of, of the things we can learn from each other, different backgrounds, different experiences, different personalities. And it's a much richer place because of them, right? But when we bring those biases and those experiences, our, our agendas to the word, well, reader, beware. Because the word is supposed to inform us and shape us, not the other way around. And that's where the Pharisees got themselves into trouble. And it also, when we do this, it also causes all sorts of problems and often tragic results. For example, you know, if, if you went through history class, and I'm assuming we all did at some point, U.S. history or something in high school or college, we, we know the sad, uh, sad example of of, of slavery, right, in our country. And, and you look back at this and you read through the letters of the day and the sermons of the day, many Christians, sadly, fueled by their pastors in the pulpits, use the Bible and their interpretation of it to justify slavery. And they used it to, to, to see people of a different color as inferior, right? Um, to, to see them as less of God's image, which served their agenda, didn't it? They needed to be able to do this, to establish this so that they could be justified in, in enslaving them or oppressing them or separating them from their families or, or even killing them. Now, now, we sit here in the 21st century and we kind of like shake our heads and we wag our fingers and we say, that was horrible. How did Christians use the Bible to justify that? We think it's not that hard to understand. How could they do that? I mean, it's right here in the Bible, you know, created in God's image. God loves us, all those things. We would not have done that, right? We would have been on the side of the, of the minority of Christians, you know, the abolitionists, the activists who are working against slavery. Maybe. There was, a, there was an article I read recently about a, a professor at a Christian college, and they were discussing this topic and looking at history and, and all these things, and... And um, he did a survey of the students on this subject. And all of the students stated unequivocally that they are sure that they would have been on the side of the abolitionists, that they would not have supported slavery. But when you understand the numbers of Christians that did, especially in the South, well, that doesn't quite, can we, can we, can we believe that? When we bring our agenda to the word, we, we can miss the point. The same thing happened when European Christians came to the New World, right? Native Americans were seen as pagans, inferior beings, and therefore unworthy of keeping the lands that had been theirs for centuries. And it's not like we have a corner on this. This has happened in South America and in Africa, in Asia, other parts of Europe, and it's even happened among Christians where some group's interpretation of the word leads them to persecute another group's interpretation of the word because it's different. 
when we bring our agenda in the negative sense of the word, bring our agenda to the word, we miss the point. And that's the tricky thing, isn't it? How do we, how do we know if we're missing the point? How do we know if we're bringing an agenda or a bias to, to the word? How do we separate from that? I mean, it's, it's difficult to do. I'm sure most of those Christians uh, back in the 18th and 19th centuries who used the Bible to justify slavery, they didn't think they were missing the point. They, I'm sure most of them were really pretty confident that what they were doing was the right thing to do and it was justified biblically. So what are we supposed to do? I think we must start with remembering that we are to be mastered by the word, shaped by the word, rather than seek to, to master it. That's an important distinction. We are to be mastered by the word rather than seek to master it. Because the Pharisees, remember, these guys were trying to master the word. They knew it very well. It was the center of their lives. It was the center of their world. They tried to look at everything through the word. They were religious, spiritual people. But they missed the point. Because the problem was, while they were seeking to learn it and to memorize it and to wrestle with all these big questions, what does this mean? How do we apply this? What are we supposed to do with this? They forgot that they were to submit to the word and be mastered by it and allow it to challenge them and their culture and their bias and their experiences and everything was to challenge them. And so they end up like the hard soil or the rocky soil or, or, or the thorny soil. And they heard the word and it didn't take root. It didn't transform them. They simply had a bunch of information and knowledge, but it didn't transform them, didn't change them. And sadly, people who start off with the right intentions, they wanted to know God's word. They wanted to honor God. They wanted to apply it rightly. They wanted to obey it. They ended up using the word to justify their actions and attitudes. What were some of those actions and attitudes? Well, things like Samaritans and Gentiles, they're dogs. But we, the people of God, we're, we're special. We're more important. We're more loved than they are. Or things like, if you're rich, then you are loved by God. If you're poor, you must have done something wrong. You're not loved quite as much. Or things like women and children are their second-class citizens, and they're put on earth to serve men who are ordained to be at the top of the pyramid. We miss the point when we, when we seek to master the word rather than be mastered by it. Next, we miss the point when we hear it, but we don't apply it. This is when we don't have an interpretation problem, right? We know what it means. It's very clear about what it means. But we just don't do it, right? I'm cleaning myself here. We just don't do it because it might cost us something. It might change our life in some way. Uh, it might make us uncomfortable. It might make us give something up might make us think about ourselves differently. The Apostle Paul, or excuse me, Apostle James powerfully writes about this, this tendency when he urges us to be doers of the word, not just hearers. He goes on to say that, that a person who looks in the mirror and walks away forgetting what he looks like, that's what a person who knows the word and doesn't do it. That's what they're like too. 
Now, let me be honest here. This one hits home, really close to home for for a lot of us. I know it does for me. We know what to do. The word is clear on it. We just don't do it. And we often work our way around it through loopholes and comparisons. Hey, you know, I maybe don't do it, but I, I do it more often than they do. And, you know, I'm not as bad as them. And, but Jesus does not let us off the hook so easily. In the Sermon on the Mount, which was a little bit earlier in, in, this, in this gospel in Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus cuts right to the heart of the matter regarding this. When Jesus um, talks about the difference between our actions and the attitudes and motives behind them. Okay? Uh, And he lets the Pharisees, he lets the disciples, he lets the crowd, he lets us know that, that, um, that hearing the word and then not doing it, not applying it, focusing on the letter of the law but not the spirit of the law, is not close to what God wants for us or from us. You see, external conformity is worthless without inward devotion and awareness of our heart's motive. Let me repeat that. External conformity is worthless without inward devotion and awareness of our heart's motives. And so what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, he he goes through a series of compare and contrast. On the one hand, he says, you have heard it said. In other words, you've heard this said from the teachers of the law. You've heard this said by the Pharisees, but by your rabbis. But then Jesus says, but I tell you. And then he goes on to say his piece. And what Jesus does here is he, he shifts the focus of attention from the behavior, the outward behavior, to the underlying intents and motives, which is where God works. That's how he changes this, Right? That's how he shapes us. It's like if you're a parent and you've got a child, you can control their behavior for a while. They'll do what you tell them to do. But you can tell if they're rebelling against you on the inside, right? That's not what you want. You want them to do the right thing, to make the right choices, because they're motivated by that, because they know it's the right thing to do, because they have a soft and sensitive heart towards you, towards God, and towards others. External conformity is worthless without inward devotion and awareness of our heart's motive. So Jesus goes into this. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. Don't kill people. Yeah, right. Then Jesus says, I tell you the root of this, anger, hatred, bitterness. If you have those things towards somebody else, you've committed murder. He says, love your neighbor, forgive your Uh, forgive your enemies, pray for your enemies, um, try to make peace with people. Adultery, the area of sexuality. Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. We say, yeah, okay, that's not a good thing to do. It causes all sorts of problems. But Jesus says, well, but if you have lust towards another person in your heart, you've committed adultery. Jesus says, External conformity is worthless without inward devotion and awareness of our motives. Finally, we miss the point when we read it and we miss the author. Now, Valentine's Day was just a couple weeks ago, right? And I'm sure some of you got Valentine's cards or gave them. Those are cool to get, you know. 
Maybe there's a little love letter or note. Uh, or maybe you didn't get one, but, you know, lately you've had a note from somebody, an encouraging card or, or a thank you card. It feels good to get those things, right? You feel loved. You feel appreciated. You feel respected and valued. And when you receive a note or a letter like that or a card like that, what do you do? You read it more than once usually. Why? You're not just reading it with your brain. You're reading it with your heart because it touches you because it's something personal and you feel a connection with a person who wrote that note or card. That's how we are to come to the word. The, the word is the, is the greatest love letter ever written. It contains instructions about how to live life, uh, examples to follow, examples not to follow. Um, it, it's hard to understand at times parts of it. But at its core, this is, a, this is a love story. This is a love letter, a story of, of God, a patient, loving God, a loyal friend, a lover seeking us, calling us to a relationship with him, trying to win the hearts of reluctant, wandering, unfaithful people like you and me. And yet, if we read it simply as a set of orders, to be obeyed like the Pharisees fell into that trap? What, what happens? I mean, they took every command literally. They did their best to apply it to life. Uh, they, they, they did their best to do that. And they used it to kind of decide who was in and who was out. And they looked for, and, and they created a system of rules and loopholes to try to order life, to earn God's favor. I mean, they knew the law. They engaged it intellectually. They tried their hardest to obey it, but they didn't engage the heart. They didn't. They missed the author. They missed connecting with the author. And I think sometimes, you know, in, in the church, Big C, or in the lives of individuals, sometimes that's why we're not very effective or very, you know, don't see a lot of God's power in our lives because. We may know it really well, but we're not connecting with the author. I mean, this parable exposes to us the fact that we often buy into this deeply held but fundamentally wrong belief that spiritual maturity equals biblical knowledge. In other words, if, if I can just understand this more, if I know the, the language better, if I if I know the context or the history or if I can look at the maps, if I know where all these things and places, if I can quote genealogies, whatever it is, then, then I'm, I'm spiritually mature. Now, I'm not saying that those are bad things to do, but they do not equate with spiritual maturity. What I'm trying to say is that the key to fruitfulness lies in the condition of the soil. And fruitfulness is evidence of a growing spiritual maturity. If there isn't a lot of fruit, there's not a lot of spiritual maturity, no matter how much knowledge there is. So I want to ask you a couple of questions. How is your heart? How fruitful are you? Is your heart like the good soil, receptive, receiving it gladly, rooted deeply? God gives us the word. Not so that we have lots of information, so that we're transformed, so that we're, that, so that we're changed, our thinking, our feelings, our understanding, our relationship with God and other people. 
So how can we study the word so as not to miss the point? Well, we need to focus on the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law, obviously. We need to be careful not to use our biblical knowledge to emphasize the sins of other people and downplay our own. We don't need to be spiritual sheriffs. We need to be careful that our biblical knowledge doesn't leave us puffed up, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. You know, pride is on the list of things that God hates. We need to be aware of our underlying motives. And fourth, do we have a teachable spirit? Is there room to allow God to correct our misapplications, our misinterpretations, to challenge our agenda or bias? Because all of us are missing the point at some point, right? So how do we avoid missing the point? We focus on the author of the word. We focus on Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. We respond to his love and we seek to love him with all our heart, soul, strength and mind. And we seek to love others as ourselves. And in the process of doing this, And through that relationship with the author, we'll be changed. And by God's grace, we will begin to miss the point less often. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it challenges us. And I pray, Lord, that we would be people who are mastered by it. That even in the midst of all the study and the, the research and all the things we do that are good, I pray, Lord, that we would be people who seek to be changed by it and transformed by it, who allow it to challenge our beliefs, our actions, our, our attitudes, and that our hearts would be like the good soil and that increasingly we would miss the point less often. We thank you, Lord, for your word, Jesus Christ, who has come to be with us, and through whom we have forgiveness, salvation, and life forever. We offer ourselves to you in his name. Amen.